Let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 45. We're going to talk about uh, an interesting character. It's not the first time we've ever seen him in the book of Jeremiah, but I have to confess that I have been mispronouncing his name. And since he has an entire chapter dedicated to him, I think I should get it right, don't you? So I've been calling him Barak because I'm a crazy Westerner, uh, but uh, his actual pronunciation goes like this. Barak. Got it? Yeah. No, is that what I was saying? Oh, I must have been calling him Baruch. That's right, I was calling him Baruch, yeah. So this morning, he will either be Barak or Baruch because I don't even know what I just said five minutes ago. So uh, anytime, anytime I mispronounce his name, um, I wonder what you could do. Let's see. Maybe you better not do anything. How's that? But we are in Jeremiah 45, five verses. Who thought this was a chapter? Don't worry. I will get you out just as long as usual. We don't, we're not going to shave anything off because it's only five verses. I know you don't want to get cheated. Uh, the topic here, Barak, Jeremiah's secretary, expresses that he wanted more out of life than he was going to get. The title of our message, Look for the Barak Necessities of Life. <laughs> you guys need to come first service. I just don't know what happens first service, but I don't think people first service even know I'm their pastor. But anyway... <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. Oh, man. I have to try and pray now. Come on. All right. Father, we do come before you with humility, asking you to reveal to us every good thing, uh, every profitable thing from the life and heart of Barak, Lord. Uh, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to our church and to us as Christians. We pray in Jesus' name and all who agreed said, amen. In the 1970 film, The Out of Towners, how many of you are familiar with the 1970 version? Gwen and George Kellerman arrive in New York City so that George can interview for a job promotion. Their last name should have been Murphy because everything that can go wrong does go wrong. From the moment they depart their hometown of Twin Oaks, Ohio, they suffer nearly every indignity out of towners possibly could experience in the big city. First, heavy fog forces their flight to Circle Kennedy International Airport, finally to be rerouted to Boston's Logan Airport, where they discover their luggage, of course, is left behind. In it is Georgia's ulcer medication and all of their extra money. Just missing the train at South Station, they chase it to the next stop by cab, board it, and wait two hours for seats in the dining car, only to discover the only food left are peanut butter, sandwiches, green olives, and crackers. Upon arrival at Grand Central Terminal in New York, penniless, they discover that mass transit, taxicab drivers, and sanitation workers are all on strike at the same time. Making their way to the Waldorf Astoria on foot past tons of garbage in a torrential downpour, they discover their reservation, guaranteed for a 10 p.m. arrival, it's been given away, and the hotel, like every other one in the city, is booked to capacity due to the strikes. Those things are followed by a series of other calamities that include two muggings, kidnapping by armed liquor store robbers while they're riding in a police car, a cracked tooth, broken high heels, an exploding manhole cover, expulsion from a church, and an attack by protesters in front of the Cuban embassy. 
The only thing that goes right for George, he somehow manages to arrive on time for his interview. Despite receiving a very lucrative offer, the two decide, obviously, the big city isn't for them, and so they head back to Ohio. Their flight home is hijacked to Cuba. (laughs) The film ends with Gwen exclaiming, oh my God. Now, we find it humorously entertaining until something like that happens in real life, either to us or to those we love. Then we, too, can cry out to God. Things were going from bad to worse for Barak, Jeremiah's secretary. His version of, oh, my God, is to cry out, verse 3, the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. Now, my gut reaction would be to say to Barak, no, he hasn't. God wouldn't do that. But then I read verse four, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I will break down, and what I have planted, I will pluck up, that is, this whole land. In other words, destruction was coming. God's planned actions against his people were adding to Barak's grief. Things were bad in Judah, but they were going to get a whole lot worse, and it would definitely affect Barak's quality of life. We all have moments like that. It's when you get diagnosed with a chronic, even terminal illness, or when you receive the news that a loved one has died, or when something you cherish changes forever, or when you come to realize that you're not going to fulfill that dream. Perhaps we can learn something from Barak to help us in those trying times. I'll organize my thoughts along those lines around two questions Number one, when God adds grief, do you mourn greatness? Number two, when God adds grief, doesn't he multiply grace? First of all, when God adds grief, do you mourn greatness? It's an odd question, I admit, but it's suggested by God's answer to Barak in verse five where he asks him if he was seeking great things for himself and he tells him, not to do it anymore. Now, as I've said, we've met Barak before. He was Jeremiah's secretary writing down the prophecies that God gave Jeremiah. He's responsible for us having these words, this book, today. He was probably a servant to Jeremiah as well, a personal assistant, we would say. In their culture, he would have been perceived as a disciple He was the Joshua to Jeremiah's Moses. He was the Elisha to Jeremiah's Elijah. Along those lines, the Hebrew translation of verse three, instead of saying, I found no rest, you read in the Hebrew Bible, I found not prophecy. Barak came to a realization he was not going to be a prophet and the successor to Jeremiah. He was not destined to be a Joshua or an Elisha. Hold that thought and let's get into the opening verse. Verse one, the word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Barak the son of Neriah when he had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now, if you've been here for any of our studies, especially the most recent ones, you recognize right away that this chapter is not in chronological order. We last saw Jeremiah and Barak having, uh, well, Jerusalem had fallen, the temple had been burned, and Jeremiah and Barak had been taken against their will by a group of Israelites to Egypt. 
Uh, This goes back before all of that took place, before the final fall of Jerusalem and before Jeremiah and Baruch were taken against their will. These events occurred just after Barak wrote down the last of Jeremiah's prophecies to Judah, predicting the final fall of Jerusalem. So you understand, Barak had been writing, he'd been hanging out with Jeremiah for four decades, writing down his prophecies, and then the last one came where God said, finally and without hesitation, my long-suffering is over and the destruction has come. It was then as he took down that final dictation that things really hit home for Barak. He realized that the destruction of the city and the temple were inevitable. It was his oh my God moment when he understood that whatever desires he had for ministry or for advancing in life or even for living a quiet life in retirement, those were all over because of God's actions. Now the Lord heard his cry, we read in verses two and three, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel to you, O Barak, you said, woe is me now, For the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. To say Barak was at a low point, that would be a huge understatement. He strung together a series of words to express his discouragement. Woe, grief, sorrow. And he mentioned here that it was affecting him physically as well. He fainted and could only sigh. He could only kind of groan, as it were. You've been there, heard something that made you feel like you've just been punched in the stomach, had your heart ripped out, felt sick to your stomach because of some terrible news. Take comfort, first of all, that God absolutely hears your cry, your heart's cry in that moment. In the New Testament, we're told he can hear even our unintelligible groanings and that the indwelling Holy Spirit interprets them Uh, to the Father in heaven. I love that passage in the book of Romans where you're just, you can't even give expression to your sorrow and to your grief and to your sadness. You're just groaning and moaning as it were and the Bible says that God understands what you don't even know about the suffering of your heart. Now, the fact that God hears your cries can then be coupled with one of his names to speak to your heart. The particular name I'm thinking of is found in 2 Corinthians 1.3, where Paul calls God the God of all comfort. What a beautiful title. What a beautiful attribute of God. The God of all comfort. Now, I take all to mean, firstly, that his comfort is inexhaustible. He has plenty to dispense. He has all the comfort there is. You and I may try to comfort someone. Sometimes the only thing we can say is, I don't know what to say. Have you ever been there? Probably the best thing to do to try and comfort somebody who's really sad, really sorrowing, is to say nothing. Just be there, be present with them, letting them know that you love them and care for them. The next best thing to say is, I don't know what to say, because you probably don't. Uh, Not so with God. He may not say anything right then, but you know that he always knows what to say, and he has a word for you, and it will come. 
I secondly take all to mean that his comfort can come in many and different forms. He has all kinds of different comfort that he can bring to you at his disposal. It can come in the form of another person and that's normally the way we like to receive comfort. We want to have somebody there who we know loves us and is gonna be with us. It can come in, in, in a powerful way through scripture that ministers to your heart. God's comfort can be a healing, can it not? Uh, emotionally or physically or in some way where the situation is actually healed. It can also come as the strength to endure your hardship. That too is a comfort. Now I like to think of comfort as the removal of uncomfort, not the strength to endure uncomfort. Uh, But when you get into walking with the Lord, you realize that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and how much he suffered on our behalf and we enter into the fellowship of his sufferings, sometimes, maybe even a lot of times, if not most of the time, God's comfort is going to be the strength to endure uncomfort. Look at Barak. He seemed on track to succeed Jeremiah. Now, that may not seem a thing to be desired given the response of the Jews to Jeremiah. But for Barak, it was his professional identity. It was his career. It would make decades of serving in the shadows worthwhile to finally have the mantle of the prophet upon his shoulders. But it just wasn't to be. Verse four, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I will break down, and what I have planted, I will pluck up, that is, this whole land. These words, a great summary of the previous 44 chapters of prophecy. They are the Cliff's Notes version of the book of Jeremiah to this point. Judah would fall and the Jews exiled to Babylon. There would be no repentance, no revival, only discipline and difficulty. You know, if you're Barak, if you're Jeremiah, no matter what you've been saying for the last 40 years, you keep thinking of Nineveh and that at the last possible moment, God will still relent of his judgment if people will just get on their knees and repent of their sin. And so you day after day, decade after decade, are saying judgment is coming, the walls are gonna fall, the temple's gonna be burned, turn from your sin, and you know that until it's actually happening, there's a possibility of repentance and revival, but this word that God was giving now was, I will judge all flesh. It's over. My long suffering is over at this point. 40 years is enough. And now I'm going to accomplish through discipline what the people could have accomplished through repentance. And Barak, you're going to have to be a part of this. It's a tough time to be alive. Some of you have been alive and around in really tough times. I mean, maybe we're living in tough times. I can't tell. But, um, you know, I, I heard my dad and, you know, my family talk about things like World War II uh, and the Vietnam era and things like, I'm not saying that individuals can't have tough times now, but generally speaking, we're doing okay as a people. But there are, have been really, really tough times where it doesn't matter what your dreams are, they're on hold, they're subordinate to what's happening in the world. And this was that time for Barak where God said, you might have some dreams, you might have some desires, uh, but they have to be on hold. And that's what he says in verse five. He says, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, 
says the Lord. Now, we can't really say exactly what great things Barak was thinking he would accomplish in his life. As we've seen, the text suggests he might have been disappointed he would not become a prophet and follow in Jeremiah's footsteps, as it were. Great things doesn't have to mean extraordinary accomplishments. That's what we think when we read that. But one other English version translates the phrase by saying, don't make any big plans for yourself. Now, the truth is we all have big plans. We all have things we'd like to accomplish in our lives. Now, I'm guessing that most of our big plans are not great things like achieving world peace or single-handedly evangelizing every human being. I mean, if somebody were to sit down with you, you know, maybe you have enough money to have a financial planner, and they say, well, what are some of your plans? Well, first, I want to accomplish world peace. And then after that, I want to accomplish world evangelism. A good planner would say, you need to, you got to backward. You should do the evangelism first, and then he would accomplish world peace. But nevertheless, you probably say things like, I just want to have enough money for my retirement, maybe leave a little bit for my kids. I just want to be able to live comfortably. I don't need to live in a mansion. I don't have to drive a Rolls Royce, but I, I just, I've just got some plans. And so those plans, they're great to us. It'd be great to live a long, quiet life, loving others and being loved by them. It'd be great to work hard, to play hard, and then retire to enjoy the things that we have to put off while we're doing that. And there's nothing wrong with any of those plans. There's nothing wrong with having those basic dreams and desires. However... As most of us know, their fulfillment isn't always possible because something happens called life. It interferes with those plans. I came across a quote that sort of speaks to this. The author said, what screws us up most in life is the picture in our head of how it's supposed to be. We all have an idea of how our life is supposed to be and it rarely is that way. Barak had a picture in his head of how it was supposed to be. His desire to see great things for himself had to be tempered by the times in which he lived. It wasn't a time for a Joshua to lead the Jews to conquest in the promised land or for an Elisha to double the number of miracles Elijah had done. It was a time when God must severely discipline the Jews in ways that would negatively affect not just those in sin but all those who were walking with him as well. It was a time for his servants to reveal his grace in the midst of a rebellious people who were held captive and exiled. Barak didn't know it, but he was going to have an amazing ministry, not during his lifetime so much, but afterwards. Very few individuals have an entire chapter in the Bible dedicated to them, but he does. We've already pointed out that he was to be credited with the writing of this amazing book of prophecy that has ministered to countless individuals down through the centuries. He's not mentioned often in this book, but when he is, you see him serving God and Jeremiah faithfully. He has thus encouraged those generations of believers. I ran across a fascinating fact about Barak in the realm of biblical archaeology. It doesn't add anything to our understanding of our theme, but I have to share this with you. It's fascinating. Barak happens to be the only man from the Old Testament who we know has been fingerprinted. Something called markers were the bookmarks of the ancient world. In 1975, a group of archaeologists purchased some clay document markers from an Arab antiquities dealer. They didn't decipher the markers until 1986, and when they did, they discovered that one of them bears the seal, and it says, Barak, son of Neriah. 
Since then, another document marker has been discovered that not only uh, bears his seal, but also there's a thumbprint on it, very probably the thumbprint of the scribe himself. I just think that's a cool detail. God heard the cry of his faithful servant. He interpreted the inner groanings of his heart, and then he tenderly but firmly let Barak know that at this time, in this place, he didn't need a successor to Jeremiah. Barak must therefore abandon the great things he was seeking. He would not find his rest in them, but he would find them only in his relationship with God. And that brings us to the remaining words, when God adds grief, doesn't he multiply grace? We've only these few words left in verse five, but they're big words that amplify the grace of God towards Barak and ultimately toward us as well. He says, but I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. Now we've heard this before, a certain Ethiopian eunuch called by the name Ebed Melech, which is really a title that means servant of the king, he intervened to save Jeremiah's life when he had been thrown into a cistern to die. Ebed Melech was told that God would give him his life as a prize, and we saw in that study that the word for prize really means spoil of war. And so God told him, your life is going to be my spoils of war. Even though the Chaldean army of Nebuchadnezzar was victorious over the Jews, God saw his faithful servants like Ebed-Melech and Barak as his spoils of that war. Now, we sometimes use the expression, I feel like I've been in a war, to describe life when it's not going our way. Well, you are in a war, or at least you're in a war zone, and you always will be this side of heaven. Spiritual warfare is raging all around you. There's a battle for the souls of men and women and children. Although the ultimate outcome of the conflict was settled at the cross of Jesus Christ where the devil was definitely defeated, he fights on to rob and kill and destroy until the return of Jesus to the earth to fully claim what he purchased by his death and resurrection. We serve the Lord on that battlefield during that waiting time. Let me ask you this, you don't have to answer, just think about it, who's your favorite superhero? Whoever it is, they either have superpowers or they have super gadgets that elevate them above the average human being. We see our heroes and heroines as being bigger and faster and stronger and smarter. No matter who your favorite comic book superhero is, the greatest superhero of all time is of course the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's somebody we would call an anti-hero, meaning he lacks conventional heroic attributes. After all, he describes himself as laying aside his divine power and living as a man in total submission to God the Father. When they came to seize him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said he could command legions of angels, but he didn't. He let himself be taken all the way to the shame of his death on the cross. Jesus once described the attributes of a true hero. He did it in his Sermon on the Mount in a passage we like to call the Beatitudes. I'll read it very briefly for you. It says in verse three of Matthew five, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted, When they revile and persecute you, blessed are you. Those are the attributes of a true spiritual hero. 
We invent Superman or Batman when God says the true hero would be meek man. Blessed are the meek. It sounds funny, doesn't it? If only meek man were here. Meek man would save us. But you know what's really funny about that? Meek man was here and he did save his people. The Bible says of Moses. This is from Numbers 12, three. Now the man Moses was very meek. More than all the people were on the face of the earth. Moses was meek man. He didn't have to change in a phone booth or anything like that but he was the meekest man on the face of the earth at the time. What did meek man do? He led millions of God's people free from slavery, and in the process, he destroyed the most powerful army on earth at that time. He received God's law, and he applied it to a stubborn and disobedient people. He whipped them into shape, and he laid the foundation for all the future laws of all the future societies in the world. He struck a rock in the wilderness with his rod, and torrents of water came out of it, so much so that it fed, uh, it was a, a supply for millions of people and their livestock. Those who opposed him were swallowed up alive as giant sinkholes opened up (laughs) in the earth. That is what meek man did. And all the while, God looked down from heaven and said, there, that's my prize. That's the spoil of spiritual warfare. A man who will simply walk with me and bring forth the quality of meekness, that's a person that I can do amazing, extraordinary things through. Barak was a man like that. That's That's what the Lord's telling him here. That, if you want to see this as a rebuke, fine, but the Lord's telling him, this is the kind of man I see you as. And so does he look upon us. Looking down upon Barak from his throne in heaven, God could say, I will give your life as a prize in all places wherever you go, and that's what he says to us. In every circumstance of life, God looks down and exclaims to anyone with ears to hear, man or angel or demon, that is my prize. And so when you find yourself in a circumstance that lends itself to crying out to God, to groanings that cannot be uttered, God can multiply his grace to you and bring forth the true spoils of war, poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, and the rest of the beatitudes as well as the fruit of the spirit. Not everyone might see, I mean, the the people in Jeremiah's time they didn't understand this. They 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 didn't have ears to hear. They didn't have a spiritual heart. They couldn't look at Abarak and think that he was God's treasure. They thought he was an imbecile. They thought he was a fool. Same with Jeremiah. But we have hindsight. We have perspective. We know how God looks upon his servants. It's just that we fail to understand he looks upon us that way. We are his servants. Was Barak perfect? No, he was, he was bummed out. He was crying out to God. He was saying, God, you're making things. I can't believe you're making things. Why can't I just be a prophet? Why can't I just follow in Jeremiah's footsteps? Why do I have to be alive right now? What are you doing? And God said, you don't understand. You're my great prize in all of this. You're the spoils of the spiritual war that's raging all around. And though people can't see it, it doesn't mean that it isn't true. It is true. It may not be the great things you had in mind. I could, I could write a book that would fill the world for all the great things that I thought were going to happen in my life, and my life's only at 57 years. But you know what? I do believe that God is looking down on my life as on yours as a Christian and saying, 
You're such a treasure. If you only understood the treasure that you are, you wouldn't have these complaints. And that's what I hope would be our heart today. Amen? Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you so much that uh, you, you tenderly, firmly but tenderly deal with your servants. And there's really so much packed into these five verses, more than we could ever get out of them in a single hearing or in a dozen. And I pray that this would become a favorite area of scripture for us, a great meditation, that we would often think of Barak, the everyman of scripture, Lord, because he, 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 we're there. We're, he wasn't even gonna f- be able to do the things that Jeremiah did. He seems so obscure. The average Christian probably couldn't even tell you who Jeremiah's secretary was. And yet, Lord, you gave him his life as a spoil of spiritual warfare, and that's what you want to minister to our hearts as well. Help us, Lord, to believe these things. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the title of the message today, uh, it drew from the song in Jungle Book that touted the joys of being satisfied with the bare necessities of life. If you're a Christian, the bare necessity of life is your relationship with God. Everything else, health, wealth, even what we sometimes call happiness, all of that is up for grabs, meaning that you can't be certain how your life will unfold in the times in which you live. All of that is out of your control. Uh, There's very little that you can do about it. It's okay to have expectations, to have great things in mind, as long as you realize that when they don't materialize, it hasn't affected God's heart towards you. It's usually not a judgment. It's not a punishment. It's just the way life is unfolding. It's a mystery. Uh, nonetheless, God looks upon you and say, you're, you're, says you're in the middle of a spiritual warfare. And, and the great things that you thought were going to happen, they weren't bad, but they're not going to happen. But you know what you can't lose and what won't change? My love for you, our relationship with one another. And so if you want to cry and you want to cry out and you want to groan and you want to do all that, God will let you and he will be the God of all comfort to you. But when it's all over, you need to get up and realize the way David did after his sin, that the Lord absolutely loves you for who you are and for what he's done for you. I'd venture to say that many of us, we are struggling with some failed expectation and maybe it's even caused there to be a distance between you and the Lord. I know a lot of Christians who are backslidden, mildly even backslidden you might say, which is a silly thing to say, but because they're angry with God, something that they had planned or something that looked like was going to happen didn't happen and they blame God for it when God all the time would say to them, I love you, you're my treasure. I, I can't really explain to you everything that's happening right now. You, you wouldn't understand it. You can't comprehend it. One day you will. And so to you, you need to hear God say to you in grace and in love, don't seek great things for yourself. Seek only the Lord and know that you are his great treasure. In the New Testament, Jesus told a parable of the pearl of great price. It's sometimes misinterpreted. Uh, Jesus talked about a merchant who found a pearl that was the greatest pearl ever. And he had to have it, and so he gave everything for that pearl. The pearl is you. 
and the person who, the merchant who gives everything for it, that's God, that's Jesus Christ. A lot of times we see it's been interpreted as Jesus is the pearl of great price and we have to give everything to him. But that's not grace, that's works. We're the pearl of great price. You get to the book of the Revelation and there are four giant pearls in that book. Each one of them is a gate in the New Jerusalem. What? We're talking about some massive pearls. So when God says you're a pearl of great price, he's talking about something that's far more valuable than a gate in a city. And so that's how the Lord sees you. And so if there's, if there's some dream that you have seen fail or something going on like that, just withdraw and come back to your relationship with God. Maybe you're not a believer. In any crowd, there's always one or two or five people that don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Your greatest expectations, even if they are realized, are going to leave you empty. There's so many testimonies of rich, famous celebrities who get to the end of their life having accomplished, really from a human perspective, tremendous things. But when they're honest and they're interviewed, they say, but I'm empty inside. I feel something missing. And we know what it is because the Bible tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer there says that God has put eternity in your heart. There's uh, eternity in your heart. In other words, there's something spiritual about the human life that can only be filled by an eternal being coming in and having a relationship with you. No amount of money, no amount of physical pleasure, no amount of worldly success can even get in there. It's not even a matter of if I just had a little bit more. It's in a whole nother dimension. All of that is in the material dimension and God says what you need is something essentially spiritual and guess what? I'm the only one who has it. You're a sinner. I know that but I've come to die for you to take your place so that I can offer you my righteousness. And when you accept that equation, I'll come in and I'll fill the emptiness of your heart. I will be the eternity in your heart. And most of us have had that experience. We, we know what it is to know the Lord. If you're here today and you haven't had that experience, if you've never asked the Lord to save you, ask him to forgive you your sins, to cleanse you and make you right before God, then we would invite you to do that today before you leave. Rhett's up here, Pat's up here. Either of them would love to pray with you, lead you in a sinner's prayer of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's the only work you can do. Don't leave here thinking you have to work at getting yourself cleaned up. Uh, Jesus said, come just as you are. Today is the acceptable time. And so if you're in the fellowship hall or you're here in the sanctuary, wherever you are, and the Lord's been speaking to you this morning, come forward as we close and let these guys pray for you. If you're a Christian and you feel like you just need to be prayed for, even for somebody to say, I don't know what to say, but I'll pray for you, uh, then come forward and let us pray for you. Let's stand together. Sing one more chorus. God bless you. God bless you.